How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm your host, Justin Podur. I'm here today with Jeremy Brecker, uh, the co-founder of the Labor Network for Sustainability, author of about 15 books on labor and social movements, my favorite of which is Strike, uh, a labor, an exciting history of American labor, according to the New York Times Book Review, originally published in 1972, and a 40th anniversary edition is coming out this year. Um, Also author of Globalization from Below, another short and really powerful book I I really liked when it came out uh, 17 years ago. And most recently, uh, the reason I've invited him to talk to us today is the author of a couple of essays about how to resist uh, the Trump agenda Uh, One called How Labor and Climate United Can Trump Trump, and the other, which I think, if you don't mind, Jeremy, we'll talk about first, Social Self-Defense, Protecting People and Planet Against Trump and Trumpism. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Good to be with you. Okay, so uh, your your essay, Social Self-Defense, starts with... uh, Donald Trump and a powerful collection of anti-social forces have taken control of the U.S. government. Uh, What we need, what resistors to repressive regimes elsewhere have called social self-defense. Can you just uh, tell me a a bit about where that idea comes from and how how you see it working in this context? Well, the first thing to say is that we know that the Trump regime and the Republican right in Congress and their supporters and allies threaten all kinds of individual groups. They threaten immigrants, they threaten women, they threaten organized workers, they threaten people who need health care, and the list goes on and on and on. But I think it's crucial to understand that this is not just a series of threats to separate groups, but what we're really seeing is a threat to society, a threat to our ability to live together uh, as people with some kind of life that is not nasty, brutish, and short. And the response we need to make is to defend all of the groups that are under attack, but to defend them as part of a common response to a common threat. As I was feeling my way towards that idea, I remembered a group called KOR that was formed in Poland at a time of great repression. There were, uh, had been major strikes and then very brutal suppression of them. Some people started just going out to the trials, which were often in remote areas, and then to the prisons and visiting the families of strikers who had been incarcerated, bringing them food. When they were on trial, they got them lawyers uh, various kinds of aid to the families. And it. I, I thought of the very early responses that were going on 
to the election of Donald Trump in terms of people who were just saying, we're going to be available to protect immigrants who are under threat. We're going to be available to help Muslims who are under threat. We're going to be available to help gay and lesbian people who are under threat. We'll go to where they are. We'll make sanctuaries in our our churches and our town halls. If ICE comes and threatens people with arrest, we'll go on our uh, rapid response network and we'll just go to their house and video and try to protect them as best we can. It reminded me of that, uh, what was originally called Workers' Self-Defense, KOR, and it became broadened to be called Social Self-Defense. And I thought, that's what we're really doing here. And as the response to Trump has broadened and deepened, as as we've seen what are probably the largest demonstrations in American history uh, with the Women's March, people just flocking to the airports in response to the Trump ban on immigrants and visitors from seven Muslim countries, which happen to be seven countries in which he doesn't have any investments. One wonders why they were selected. But in any case, the response has been deep and broad and very, very multifaceted. And you can not only that, but from what I can tell, the people who are participating in that, they may be going to a women's march, they may be going to a demonstration for immigrants, they may be going to any number of particular actions with particular targets. But my sense is that the overwhelming majority of those people are not uh, operating in terms of a particular issue in a silo, but are operating uh, on the need for a common response to the, the threat that's presented by Trump and Trumpism. And that is really the underlying idea of social self-defense. What we're really doing here is just defending our people and our society against that attack. And I wanted to ask you what you think about the prospects for that are as, I mean, part of a bullying strategy is to try to isolate people from one another, attack them one at a time. And it seems like what Trump was doing with his initial week of executive orders was just to try to do so much so fast that it would make it impossible to get organized. But in on the flip side of that strategy by Trump is the possibility of uniting all of these constituencies that you intend to pick off one at a time. So what do you think? I, I imagine that Trump is going to try to adjust and target one group at a time and I wonder how a social self-defense would would respond to that. Well, I think we've already seen them trying to pick one group and then pick another group. And so far, the most dramatic case we've seen of that is the attempt to win over the labor movement, uh, organized labor, most of all is, uh, construction trades, uh, but more broadly having uh, uh, inviting um, Richard Trump, president of the AFL-CIO, uh, then meeting with the building yeah. trace people, all smiles yeah. and the photographs and so on. I think that's a very disturbing sign of the potential for him to do that at the same time he's attacking, for example, immigrant their immigrant members, their women members, their gay members, and attacking the rights of all unions to have uh, 
uh, basic rights to negotiate and bargain collectively. Is the strategy then going to be one of just refusal? Are we moving towards strategy where we say we're, we're going for non-cooperation with Trump's government? Well, I think that that's, uh, that's a, a, an oversimplified view of what a, a, at least the kind of strategy I was proposing. I think yeah. there's a multifaceted strategy has yeah. different parts. I think one part is to prevent the, all the horrible things he's trying to do, blow them up and block them as much as possible. And so far, <clears throat> that strategy has been amazingly successful. If you go down the list from the Mexican wall to Obamacare to the immigrant ban and through all of the things he's been proposing and that he was going to do immediately in the first days. Many, many of them have already been either severely slowed down or blocked. My approach to the overall strategy is, yes, the first step is to stop the evils that he's planning to do in their tracks, and that starts with, has two, two aspects to it. One is what we can do in the streets. For example, trying to stop ice raids, the people who went out to the airports, millions of people who participated in the Women's March. These are in civil society, in the street rea- uh, actions, and then myth- affecting the political system uh, in all kinds of ways by putting pressure on elected officials, by making Republican elected officials afraid that they are uh, alienating their own constituencies if they stick with Trump and splitting the Republican Party in that way and putting a great deal of pressure on uh, Democratic politicians to stand up to Trump and fight his agenda. I saw a headline within the last day or two in the mainstream media, the lesson of the first weeks of the Trump presidency is that resistance works. That's been true to a, a, a quite astonishing extent, of certainly far more so than I would have thought when I wrote this essay, even though I was advocating both uh, outside the system civil society and the inside the system legal and political strategy that they, that they work in tandem. You can see that they really are being affected. However, I think it's also important that we try in the areas where we have the power to do so to put forward constructive actions, and we've seen an awful lot of that too. Just for example, governors and mayors all over the country, many places, saying Trump may pull out of the Paris Agreement, but they are going to uh, follow the basic climate protection measures and reductions in greenhouse gases that the Paris Agreement calls for, uh, and even proposing that the climate mayors, as they're sometimes known, uh, apply to be the representatives of the United States in the Paris Agreement bodies. Numerous other examples, especially around immigration, where the states and the cities that pose the Trump agenda are actually making concrete plans to start doing their own thing in the interest of the people. And I think that that's really crucial to showing that a robust strategy that actually begins to meet the problems of, that people felt that led some people uh, extremely unwisely to support Trump. Uh, one other thing I would say here is that the progressive program, and I would say it was quite, a, quite well represented in the program of the Bernie Sanders campaign, for full employment, for climate protection, and for full employment based on climate protecting jobs and the other elements, uh, medical health care for all. These are 
programs that would have a lot of appeal in the very areas where people out of desperation voted for Trump. And I think as outreach, a perfect example would be the fight for 15, where I think all of us, whether we're part of the labor movement uh, or not, we can see the fight for 15 as a crucial part of winning support for a progressive defense of, of people and for moving forward toward uh, creating a more decent life for, for all of our fellow uh, Americans. And So maybe we can switch back and forth then because this, this material you just touched on is is described in more detail in your essay, right. uh, How Labor and Climate United Can Trump Trump. And one of the, some of these uh, ideas that you had here, uh, your economic program for climate jobs and justice, create good jobs, protect threatened workers and communities, remedy inequality and injustice, evolve toward a new economy. And you're, one, of, one of the things you say here is that there's this resentment by workers against environmentalists uh, as being out of touch how how do you how do we how do we overcome those distrust piece on five ways to overcome the divisions between environmental and labor movements for Perfect. just for example so um, i think there's a, there's a couple of levels that are bo- both very very important one is to have a, a an actual program that uh, addresses the needs of people who might be threatened by climate change, climate change policies. The problem that, that we're up against here is that climate protection will create far more jobs than continued fossil fuel expansion. We did a study at the Labor Board for Sustainability called the Clean Energy Future that shows there'll be five times as many jobs created by Climate transition and a transition that gets us to reduces energy fossil fuel produced energy by eighty percent. Uh, there will be five times more jobs created than will be lost. But of course, that's cold comfort if one of the jobs that's lost is your job. And that I think is part of what we need to be mindful of, and that the environmental and climate protection movements really need to take on as something that they understand. What's what's resented is. You're going to take away my job, and you don't care about its effect on me. Yeah, and in, in a sense, I think this is what Obama. This was almost policy under Obama, right? To say, well, there's a skills shortage, and if you lose your job, you can just you should go back to school, and it's because you weren't in an important industry. So I think that approach is bound to create a lot of resentment. Right, right, and a lot of the environmental movement has taken that approach, or only given lip service to, uh, you know, of course we should give people a helping hand, but not really taking on and developing a program to do so. And, and Labor Network for Sustainability, this is very much what we work on, and our website has a, a bunch of very concrete proposals, for example, to start creating funds, revolving funds, putting requiring fees from fossil fuel companies, and also, by the way, uh, uh, companies with uh, nuclear power plants and require them to start putting money away for helping the workers and also the communities that they're located in as so that as they phase out they can be have replacement sources of jobs and economic uh, resources for workers and communities 
oh, these are these are yeah, these are kind of like policy design ideas that that right. could yeah, and they and they don't actually have to wait for some national policy. This could be done at a state or or uh, even a local level. For example, uh, there's a place uh, in New York State where a power plant, coal-fired power plant, is is just uh, decided to close it down, and the school local tax base is severely affected by it, the schools and so on, and they actually. Uh, organized several unions and com uh, community groups and environmental groups cooperated to do a campaign to address this and actually won substantial compensatory payments from the state uh, as part of the shutdown plan and from the company to provide for the community and the workers uh, in, in the context of it being closed down. So I think part of, uh, part of the answer to your question is a broad program that says how we should deal with this socially, but it also means getting in there and fighting nitty-gritty for yeah. the people who are going to be adversely affected and showing that we really are concerned. And environmentalists and climate protectors showing that they think not just as people who are concerned about that, but also as people who are good fellow citizens and fellow members of the local community. Let's uh, get back to, if you don't mind, let's get back to Trump. There's a section of this essay that I found fascinating, the social self-defense essay, How Might the Trump Regime Be Terminated? And uh, you talk about some of these scenarios, but ultimately conclude uh, that a tyrannical regime can be brought down by people power. Can you, uh, can you elaborate on what, what we can find in this section? Sure. Here, here's the basic problem. Obviously, uh, at least at the moment, if we had another election right now, Trump would not do very well, put it mildly, judging by all kinds of things. Uh, and obviously, uh, a, a nice, simple way of disempowering Trump would be in two years, the, we have an election and we overwhelmingly elect uh, people who are not Trumpites, and that presumably means people who are not uh, Republicans and have anti-Trumpites controlling the Congress, and in another two years we uh, have another election and we get rid of Trump. There are a couple of problems with that, and the biggest one is that we op are operating in a kind of pseudo-democracy in which we still have elections, uh, or what look like elections, but the votes of Many people are devalued by gerrymandering, and the votes of many other people are uh, actually forbidden through all kinds of devices. The people who were once incarcerated not being allowed to vote, or whether it's uh, not having voting places in poor black communities, and all the other techniques that are used to prevent voting. The real voting fraud, we might call it. And the Republican Party and Trump's administration have rather terrible plans in mind for greatly uh, expanding that attack on the, on the franchise uh, and further eroding the principle of one person, one vote. Uh, and if they have control of the Supreme Court, they're very likely to get away with a lot of it. So we're going to be facing uh, elections that are fundamentally undemocratic elections. And of course, that's not to mention funding that is overwhelmingly based on the, the wealth of the wealthy 
and yeah. uh, all the other things that make our uh, democratic elections undemocratic. I think makes many people despair of getting rid of Trump and Trumpism by, by democratic means, and yet Trump controls the army. Trump, uh, Trump and his supporters control large parts of the police. How do you how do you challenge some kind of armed uprising aside from the, aside from the many other reasons that it would be a terrible idea? It's also hardly likely to be a successful strategy. So it's like a dilemma. People you, people feel like there's no there's no way to do it. But the reality is that in many, many countries, people power in various forms, mass demonstrations, general strikes, have actually been used in the context of elections to undermine undemocratic processes on the part of many, many regimes around the world and to protect the ballot, uh, use people power to ensure that elections not be stolen. And I give, there are many examples of this, but I give one example. Uh, obviously, a situation not parallel in many ways to anything we would face in the United States, namely the defeat of Milosevic in Serbia, where you had a dictator, but one who uh, continued to hold elections, although very undemocratic ones, and Basically, there is a, a quite elaborate strategy that was developed by groups that started with student and youth groups and then spread that involved, and I won't try to describe the whole strategy. It's, it is fascinating, uh, I agree, but it involved building a broad front that re- demanded cle- uh, clean elections, creating mass uh, election observers, uh, putting huge pressure on the opposition. There were 13 opposition parties, and they were all squabbling and all all willing to support Milosevic for the right price. And they created a situation where they actually forced them to cooperate and choose one candidate uh, to run against Milosevic, which meant that there was probably, I don't know, 60 or 70 percent public support. Nobody liked Milosevic, but if he could divide them into 13 parties, he didn't have much trouble staying in office. Then when the election was held, they did massive mobilization for poll watching. And then when Milosevic said, oh no, we have to have another runoff election, they began a rapid popular mobilization. He said, do anything that you can do in your situation to protest and Journalists took over the radio stations and people blocked traffic and so on all over the country. And then they set a deadline and hundreds of thousands of people began coming in to the capital to demand that most of us should acknowledge the results of the election and retire. Uh, The police met them on the roads and were given orders to shoot to kill. But when they saw the size of the demonstrations, uh, the number of people who were pouring in, they uh, had second thoughts and they uh, refused the orders and laid down their arms and either melted away or joined the demonstrators and within a day or so Milosevic gave up and agreed to accept the results. So this is not necessarily how things would play out here or have to play out here, but it's a strong signal, a strong demonstration that even in a situation where elections are largely unfair and manipulated by those in power, there are ways 
through mass mobilization and people power to challenge that and uh, make it impossible for that kind of dictatorial power to maintain itself. And what I really liked about social self-defense, this essay, is that it's not dependent on what the Democrats do, really. That's exactly right. It, it, it considers them an important force uh, in the total equation and considers what they may or may not do to be something that is very important for the, the movement the social, for social self-defense. We want, we want them to be part of social self-defense. We want them to fight the Trump agenda. But we assume that whether they do so or not depends a lot on what we do and the pressures we put on them. And by the way, you can already see that a, a, a great deal, sort of a development here uh, called Indivisible. Yeah, there was that manual. That was- the manual came out and they're now, I, I heard there are 4,500 groups around the country that are using it. The switchboards at the Capitol said they've gotten more calls in the last couple, of, last week than ever in history. I think uh, they said three times as many in ever, as ever in history. I went to an organizing group in my little town. Well, it had 40 people. The population of the town is 1,200, so gives you some idea. And its purpose is to put pressure on legislators, both Democratic and Republican, to oppose the Trump agenda. There, as I said earlier, there, there are really two big arenas for social self-defense. And that, that putting pressure on the political system is one, and street heat and action in civil society is the other. And they have to work together. They have to be synergistic, which is really the point of the example about uh, defeating Milosevic. The problem we're up against is neither one in itself is adequate. So looking to the Democratic Party and assuming that it's going to provide the leadership is, uh, I think, very, very risky strategy based on not really evaluating their past performance and likely yeah, current performance. But on the other hand, they are crucial players yeah. uh, in defeating Trumpism and forcing them to do the right thing is an, is an absolutely central strategy for defeating Trumpism. Uh, the, the last thing for maybe, uh, and if I'll let you add anything else that you want, but the, I just wanted to say the last thing that I like about this strategy of social self-defense is it, I think because of your background as a historian, it really fits with a, a lot of what we've seen in American social movements. There's not, you didn't call for some central organization or some vanguard party, which has never been present in American history, really. There have been upsurges uh, of the kind that we've seen and of the kind that you document in Strike. So it seems like a very organic strategy that could really work in the American context that we see today. Great. Well, I think it's uh, your comments on Target. Social self-defense is not an organization. It's, It's something rather different from the social movements that we are familiar with in that it's not built around an issue or a constituency, although it includes many issues and many constituencies. It's a, it is a social practice that people of, of many, many kinds with many concerns and backgrounds are, are adopting 
because it's necessary in order to, to respond to the threat that we're all facing. Jeremy Brecker, thank you very much. Great, thank you.